so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you make. Today's Clark Rageous Moment is an update on a New York law that allows merchants to charge you more to use plastic. Why is it a Clark Rage? I'll fill you in. And coming up later, I have an update uh, for you on my latest cancer tests, and I will tell you what's going on with my health and what my future looks like with cancer. Right now, I want to talk about something that has been very controversial around the country and also in other countries as well. It is sugar taxes, where if you use a sugared soft drink, you buy a sugared soft drink in some cities, some countries, you pay a much higher price for it than if you buy something that is not a sweet and soft drink. Well, in Philadelphia, what people call the soda tax has actually caused sales of soft drinks to fall 40%, even when you include people like me that would go outside jurisdiction to buy drinks without the tax, even when you count that, sales are down 40%. And according to the study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the consumers in the Philadelphia metro area are consuming 1 billion fewer ounces of soda per year now because of the tax. The tax is one and a half cents per ounce. So for a 20-ounce bottle, that means it's now 30 cents more. Inside Philadelphia itself, sales fell by more than half. But then there are people like me that dropped it to about 40% by going and buying outside. Now, I have no problem with trying to reduce what government has to spend for health coverage by taxing something. I have a big problem with bans. It's like the thing with cigarettes. Do you know because of the massive increases in taxes around the country on cigarettes and so many employers treating smokers like pariahs and making you go outside in the cold or the heat or the rain or the snow or whatever to smoke your cigarette, that smoking consumption has collapsed in the United States. And of late, the cigarette companies have been reporting continuing meaningful drops in cigarette sales. Today, the percent of, I'm trying to remember, the percent of Americans that smoke is I think now down to 13% of adults, I think is the most recent number. Don't quote me on that. That's what I remember. And it used to be 40%, 40%. So the awareness of public health was one factor, but the taxing, the daylights out of cigarettes was another. At the same time, I'm not in favor of prohibition. And as you may or may not be aware, 
I'm one of those people who may be a lunatic, but I don't believe in making drugs illegal. That the, we to say that some things are legal and others are not doesn't eliminate the illegality. It just creates crime and takes people underground who might seek treatment otherwise. But that's for another day. The idea of taxing soft drinks, I think, is fine as a public health thing because the problem with obesity in the United States and the problem with diabetes, those two things combined are an enormously expensive drain on resources and life. And let me add an annex that came up in a Clark Sinks recently. I'm not referring to diabetes that somebody just inherently gets. I'm talking about diabetes that's based on uh, usually weight gain and lifestyle is what I'm referring to. I probably said that in a way they'll still cause the Clark stinks. Matt is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Matt. Hi, Clark. How's it going? Great. Thank you, Matt. How can I serve you? So my wife and I are working on paying off some student loans. We've got about $60,000 that we're working through. We just paid off my wife's car, uh, and we're currently renting. But we want to know if we should just continue to rent while we pay off these loans, or are we missing out on the awesome interest rates that are out there right now? Yeah, that is a, a difficult puzzle. Can I ask approximately what's your combined family income? We make combined about 120 right now. Okay, so you're making double the student loan debt. Okay. Yes. And do you know what interest rates your student loans are carrying? Yeah, they're between 3 and 7%. Okay. So if you've ever heard me talk about this, the emphasis needs to be on the 7%ers. The 3% loans, the absolute minimum you're allowed to pay, you want to pay. Mm -hmm. and you want to devote your efforts to the highest interest rate student loan you've got, and then once you wipe that one out, the next one up. Please tell me okay. the the heaviest amount of your student loans are at lower rates, not the higher ones. Can you tell me that or no? You know, my wife is a big chunk, and that is at about 5%, and mine are the ones that are closer to the 7% range that are, you know, in the two, three, four thousand $4,000 range. Okay, so those, that's got to be a priority for you. Okay. Because that is a heavier burden than what we're talking about with what you might be experiencing with mortgage rates. Uh, as you look forward, how much are you as a couple able right now as a renter to pay towards these student loans each month? Not what they ask for, but what you can really realistically as a couple pay towards these. We are getting closer to the $3,000 a month range. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. So you are going to be able to get these into a completely manageable standpoint. And I, if I was thinking about ratios, right now it's 50% of annual income. I would say that if you looked at buying a house um, next spring, you'd be at a point where you would have cut these loan balances somewhere into the upper 20s, mid to upper 20s total mm -hmm. owed. 
and you would have gotten rid of the higher interest rate ones, I'd say that would be completely a green light time for you to proceed with buying a home. Okay. There's now, very what? unlikely anything that will happen, although it's always hard to predict, but it's very unlikely anything would happen in the intervening, let's say, eight to ten months till you start looking for a home that would drive rates up to a point that you're going to want to beat your head against a wall. Makes sense. Now, where would that leave us as far as a down payment? I'm in the school of thought that I want to get as close to 20% as possible. Now, with paying off student loans, obviously our savings account is not as large as it could be. Sure. What would you say, should we just go ahead and rent even another year after that? Do you think that no, would No, I don't, I don't want something? you to keep putting it off. If you could set a target of 10% that you could put okay. down, you could then get what's known as an 80-10-10 loan, which would okay. still help you avoid private mortgage insurance, which is the big Perfect. benefit of 20% down. You take out a first mortgage for 80% of the purchase price, a second mortgage for 10% or home equity line, depending on what's available or loan, and then the other 10% is your down payment. Awesome. So I think you could completely set, you're setting a clear goal. The goal is to be able to buy a home next spring. You know that what you need to do is cut the student loan debt by half, and you're on your way. Thank you so much, Clark. We just appreciate everything that you do for everybody, and Every time I think about spending money, I just put on a podcast and you kind of set me straight. So do I do that with guilt or encouragement? Which is it you get from me? I think a little bit of both. (laughs) All right. Well, that means I'm doing my job. If I am able to sneak in some guilt with a combination of encouragement, I've done things right. Chris is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Chris. Hi. Thanks for helping us out. Certainly, Chris. Uh, we're considering moving from Connecticut to Florida to be near two of our grandchildren or two of our children and our five grandchildren, uh, age two months to 13 years. And we've seen horror stories from family members who have used interstate movers. Oh, yes. Uh, in, including grossly misleading estimates, delays of many weeks receiving furniture, items being lost or maybe stolen. Um, how do I choose an interstate mover, and what can I do to uh, help make the process go well? Yeah, so this is such a fantastic question you're asking, and Florida has been the heart of the moving scams. For people moving uh, out of Florida, moving into Florida, there are a number of organizations that are alleged that they may well be um, run by the mafia, that they actually do engage in household goods hijacking, and mm-hmm. we'll hold your goods ransom for ransom. And if you don't pay the ransom, you never see your stuff again. Stuff of yours is stolen. They lie about what you're going to be charged and charge you five, ten times what the move quote was. I mean, it is a hideous problem that happens in other places as well. But Florida seems to be ground zero for it. So and there's I thought a, you were going to help relieve my anxiety. I am, because I'm going to tell you how to avoid the mafia. Okay. All right. So I want you to start at a website called moving.org. Mm-hmm. And when you go to moving.org, 
you'll see what they now call their Pro Mover program. And these are movers who've agreed to um, follow a code of ethics and a set of procedures. They're mainstream companies in the moving industry. It doesn't mean they're not going to break something of yours because that just happens. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have some issues because moving is complicated and it's hard to find people to do the work, but it's going to greatly uh, reduce, if not eliminate, the odds that you'll be hit with a scam or criminals. Um, the second how, thing, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was going to also ask about how about those places where you put it into a, somebody moves it, puts it into a container, and then that's shipped. You can do that, but you're doing a whole house move, are you not? Yes, From sir. Connecticut to Florida. Yes. Whole house move, hire a traditional mover. Okay. You're not going to want to unload that thing. <laughs> so okay. when you, when, hiring a uh, certified pro mover is not enough. And again, you'll find them at moving.org. There's two other things you got to do. On an interstate move, you have a legal right to something nobody knows to ask for. There is an estimate, and that's usually what you're offered, and that means nothing. You only want to get what's known as a binding estimate. That means that you cannot be charged more than that price for the move, unless you in some way have misrepresented how much stuff you have. And so a binding estimate will eliminate that bill shock at the end. The okay. next thing is that um, in a very anti-consumer move, the U.S. Congress has left the reimbursement for damaged goods or stolen goods or lost goods at what it was in 1936, <laughs> when obviously things cost a whole lot less. So you have to protect yourself by buying your own coverage, uh, usually from the mover. I want you to buy what's known as replacement value coverage, so that if anything is lost, broken, or stolen, you're covered for it for what it would cost to buy a new item. Take a couple hundred dollar deductible to hold the premium down, but if you do those three things, hire a pro mover, get a binding estimate, and insure it, odds are it'll be a smooth move. Today's Clark Rageous moment is on me. I was so excited when New York implemented a new law based on a court ruling that retailers and restaurants are free to charge you a higher price if you use a credit card. So essentially, there's a big charge for a merchant accepting credit cards. And if somebody's willing to pay cash, you pay a lower price than you do if you use a credit card, if the merchant chooses to charge a difference. This is why this is a Clark Rageous moment and why this is my bad. I did not count on the fact that there would be businesses that would use this as a way to abuse their customers. There's a story in the New York Post about how particularly New York restaurants are not disclosing to people till after they ring them up. They don't even say anything then. They just charge them more. That They're charging, in some cases, abusive, massive surcharges for using a credit card. As much as like on a $5 charge, charging you 9 So it would have been 5 in cash, 9 with a card. That kind of abuse. 
the reality and what the court was doing was what I described, was simply that if it costs a merchant 2% extra to take a card, that they would charge you 2% more. Unfortunately, some unethical players are playing games. I still believe that we're better off if businesses are free to charge a lower price for cash than for credit, and then you make the choice about convenience and getting your points or whatever cash back, you would make that call. But there's always people that spoil what's a good thing and make it a bad thing by cheating people. So I guess it's really bad on them because I was too naive to see people would play it that way. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. You got a question for me? Go to clark.com slash ask. So I've been very public on the air for a long time about having been diagnosed with prostate cancer last decade. And I have confused people all through the years that I have never had treatment for my prostate cancer. And there have been a number of people who've been very unhappy with me, very upset, including people in the medical field, who feel that I'm being reckless, careless, and creating danger for others by encouraging what they feel is reckless or dangerous behavior. But I want to share with you some stuff, and I have brand new information that I just got yesterday about what's going on with my cancer. So... Prostate cancer, um, certain skin cancers, and also breast cancer are different than many other cancers in that there are different um, genetic makeups of the cancers with different risk levels and different consequences. Scientists now know, medical researchers now know, that Roughly 40% of people with prostate cancer have extremely slow-growing prostate cancer that they will die with, not from. The problem today is that we don't know who's in that 40%. And so it requires a process known as active surveillance, where you, if you fit what appears to be a profile of somebody who has an early stage cancer that at least initially does not look dangerous, that can be validated over time by doing biopsies and, in more recent years, MRIs. And so I, since 2006, have had 12 biopsies, and in that time I've had one, two, three, I think four MRIs. And so I am on a schedule that has been adjusted over time as my cancer has shown no meaningful growth over these years. And so I am in this thing that originally was called watchful waiting, now called active surveillance. Uh, A lot of people are in a community where the culture among doctors is that if any cancer is detected, it is to be treated immediately. Also, many patients hearing the word cancer freak out and get 
treatment immediately. It's the same thing that's going on, believe it or not, right now that gets no publicity at all uh, with medical researchers and scientists involving breast cancer, where there are certain types of breast cancers early stage that are not considered to be in any way life-threatening, but are heavily over-treated. And there are doctors that are devoting their lives in the breast cancer field to trying to get the word out that in many cases treatment is unnecessary and only the breast cancer equivalent of active surveillance is necessary, is required. Other people have extremely dangerous breast cancer just like others have extremely dangerous prostate cancer. In prostate cancer, there is a grading scale different than you're used to like stage one to four with most cancers. Prostate cancer, it's called um, Gleason 6, 7, and beyond. And the higher the number, the worse it is for you. The lower the number, the better. People that are Gleason 6s and many Gleason 7s are good candidates for active surveillance. It is important with prostate cancer to not freak out. And second, to read in medical journals. And the Prostate Cancer Foundation has a very good plain English guide to what you need to know if you are, in fact, diagnosed with prostate cancer. We have a link to it at clark.com cancer. And if you, you or a family member or friend are diagnosed with prostate cancer and you're really upset, feeling a lot of anxiety, go read this free guide and you'll have a better sense about what you should do. Um, as far as those uh, either individuals who are not medical or people in the medical profession who feel that I have been reckless... I, I just respectfully disagree. I've been very careful in how I've handled this, and I'm not going to do something foolish. I just uh, got my latest results from my latest biopsy. I had an MRI last month at UCLA Medical Center, and I had a biopsy last week at UCLA Medical Center, and my MRI showed no evidence of any dangerous cancers, and the biopsy found what it's found all through the years, minimal, very low grade, the lowest cancer score, Gleason 6, of cancer. And so the protocol is, I've gone from initially every six months having tests to once a year, to every 18 months, to now I'm on, I've been on a two-year cycle, now I'm on a 30-month cycle. And so two and a half years from now, I will, unless something happens in the intervening time that's worrisome, I'll be checked again. I want you to know, most of all, and again, you want to know more about this, go to clark.com slash cancer. I want you to know that as a patient, know that you and I are lay people. We don't have medical knowledge. I'm terrible at science. Terrible. But been very motivated and i read medical journals i don't read you know who knows whose blog i read articles that are posted in medical journals about it i have to sit with a glossary of medical terms as i read a journal to understand what 
the researchers are saying in the medical journals. But I want to be as knowledgeable as I can. And that's what I encourage you to do. Not to try to tell a doctor what to do. Not at all. The doctor has superior knowledge. He or she has spent a lot of year in school, years in school, but they are not God. And you need to manage your own health care. You need to be your own advocate. And you need to be prepared with knowledge and not just be there like a sheep doing whatever you're told. I encourage you with your wallet to be a smart consumer. I encourage you with your health as well to be a smart consumer. Gregory is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Gregory. How are you? I'm doing great, Clark. Thanks for taking the call. Certainly. How can I be of service to you? My question is regarding having a Roth for a teen. And I've heard you say several times that a Roth can have a teen if they, a, a teen can have a Roth if they have earned income. And I have a 12-year-old that's replacing my mowing company, and I want to know the mechanics behind, you know, the documentation and the limits and all the mechanics behind. Okay, this is fantastic. So you've got a 12-year-old who's going to have a Roth? (laughs) Well, I hope to. So the money that your 12-year-old's earning, it's from neighbors? No, he's earning money from me. I replaced him with my service that I used to have. So the service I used to have is $5 to service, but now I'm paying him. All right. So just keep good records. Keep a record of what you were paying the service. You're paying your son to do that job, but it'll really help if your son picks up at least one other neighbor whose yard they do. Because the IRS is always suspicious when... A family member is paying a family member, particularly when it's a minor child, supposedly doing a job. Obviously, your son is doing a real job. And uh, if there's there's a neighbor's yard that's kind of small, it would be great for him to pick that up. Then you've got a really solid case where he's earning money for it. He keeps a ledger of what he's paid, and he can put in a Roth up to the amount of money that he earns in a year doing yard work. Okay. And so with Ross, there's now the ability with the low cost, some of the low cost companies to open one with basically $1 where it used to be, you had to have three or $5,000 to open a Roth. Uh, Vanguard's still at a thousand, but with um, Fidelity and Schwab, you can open what's known as a custodial Roth for your 12-year-old with any amount of money, essentially. Okay, that sounds great. So this is great, but your son, part of what he's got to do is he's got to keep a record of what he made on what day and have that in case he's ever challenged. And your documentation that you're substituting paying your son, I assume less than you were paying an outside lawn service, but anyway that you're paying him for what you are already paying an outside firm is documentation that deals with the IRS thinking you're just pulling one over on them. Yeah, I have that. Okay. But especially, get him to do somebody else's yard. Even even occasionally. 
so that he's got money coming from somebody else too. Okay, we'll have to see about that. If you end up doing one for him at Schwab or Fidelity, I really like for him to go with you and be part of the process of setting up the account and being, you know, appreciating that he's becoming an investor and the long-term benefit to him. The neatest thing about doing the Roth is that if your 12-year-old looks like college material, money in a Roth is not going to harm your child in qualifying for a good financial aid package at a college. Okay, great. So that's all good news because money in a young child's Roth becomes worth a fortune down the road. And on my investment guide at Clark.com, I have suggestions of what funds you could look at at Fidelity, Schwab, or, uh, well, he's got to have the 1000 to do Vanguard. And you remember, you never put in more than what he's earned in a year. Ray is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Ray. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. You've got a question for me about a method being touted to wipe out mortgage debt a whole lot quicker. Absolutely. What's the and story? I, I saw- I saw this video about, oh, not quite a year ago, where basically what you're doing is you're taking, um, using your credit card to get put like a lump sum on your mortgage, and then you pay it, you put all of your income towards your credit card, and then you continually pay that off until you get everything paid off, and then you do it again. You, can't, you continue to do it until you basically are mortgage-free. I haven't done it yet because I am sort of afraid to do it. So I just thought I would check with you to see what your thoughts were. Did you hear that little noise running in the background? Yes, sir. I don't know if you heard what it said. I'm going to play it again for you. That does not compute. (laughs) This is something that comes up in waves, although I must say you're the first person to ask about it in maybe the last year and a half. But there'll be times it'll be being promoted on the web or on TV, and suddenly I'll get a rush of calls about it. The idea is you ditch your fixed-rate mortgage, which right now we have very low historical rates on fixed-rate loans. What, what's your right. mortgage at? 3.75. And you replace it with a floating-rate home equity line of credit is the idea of this. So you take something that is a fixed cost and you go into a floating rate where you can end up having your wallet just shredded for you. You don't want to give up in an environment with fixed rate loans being so favorable. You don't want to give that up for something with a higher risk. The promise they make is that every time you get paid, it instantly pays down a portion of your loan balance that's figured on an average daily balance instead of how a mortgage is calculated on a monthly basis. But what this doesn't bring into account, and this is why it's important, Ray, to stay away from this, is that paying off a mortgage in lieu of everything else is not a panacea, particularly when you have mortgage money at three and three quarters percent. It's a much higher priority for you to be saving in a retirement plan if you have one available to you at work, saving in your own Roth IRA, doing things where you're building up a decent supply of money for your future, and that paying off a mortgage as the highest priority versus other forms of debt, 
I don't recommend either. So stick with what you got. You got something good that works and don't be lured in by one of these things tying in with a home equity line of credit. This is a recipe for financial disaster today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Val is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Val, you have a question for me about dumping an old iPhone to go to a bargain Android. Tell me about that. Hi, Clark. Yes, I've had um, the old iPhone 5 for many years now. And I was just wondering if it's time to get the Moto G6. So the Moto G6, are you seeing prices on it like 150 to 200? Is that about where yeah, it is? Uh, yeah, about 149. 149. Uh, the yeah. G6 is uh, a dated phone. It is a very good phone. It has a screen size. Is it like five and a half inch screen? But I'm going to make a suggestion to you that you maybe look at the G7, even though it's quite a bit more money than the G6. Okay. And the reason I would say it, the G7 is a 6.2-inch screen and is a brand new phone. The real answer to your question, how much are you really on your phone doing things? Are you an occasional user or are you on your iPhone 5 all the time? I work a lot, but in between, yeah, I would say, I don't know, maybe an hour at the most a day. Okay. I would like for you to go to maybe a place like Best Buy or somewhere where you could see the G6 and the G7 side by side, or even as a, uh, as a compromise between the two, the G7 Power. The G7 Power is a 6.2-inch screen phone. It retails at 249 but you can find it cheaper from time to time, and okay. it has a five-day battery life. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, that five, you're probably having to charge it all the time. Yeah, once a day. Yeah. So think about not having to charge a phone day after day after day. That's why I'd go look at them in person. The G6 is a great phone with a lot of people who love it. And if 150 is what you want to spend, it would be fine. But just go look at the others and see if that really is what you want to do. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.